the moment that things are actually pretty far into getting better tends to be the moment people want to give up the most. And the reason for that is if you just think about like a curve of like, I'm so excited, uh, everything's bad. Okay, now things are getting better. The point where things are getting better is very close to the low point on that curve, like from a just pure like distance, you're only just a little bit above the low point. So you're still in a terrible place. And it's actually been a longer time since you were excited than the low point. The low point, you can still remember when you were excited. When things start to get better, it's been even longer. And that was what was happening to us in 2017. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, coming to you from New York City. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with Tommy Nicholas, CEO, co-founder at Alloy, a company that gives fintechs and banks a command center to control their fraud fighting, credit, compliance risk, and identity decisioning needs. Founded in 2015, Alloy has raised around $200 million from Bessemer, Avenir, Clock Tower, Flourish, Lightspeed, Primary Techstars, and a long list of great investors. In this episode, I stopped by the Alloy New York City office where we discussed the early days of Alloy and how they overcame several tough years and finally hit their stride a deep dive of the complex world of anti-fraud and how Alloy aggregates multiple solutions into their platform, several company-building lessons in the context of a tough raising environment, and a reminder from Tommy to tech founders that it's okay to raise a down round or give the money back. Hope you enjoyed this great episode. Well, thanks for opening your doors to where the alloy magic happens here. Yes. Uh, how are you doing today, Tommy? I'm great. I'm great. It's a beautiful, beautiful day in uh, in New York City, as you can see. Yeah. I'm having a great day. I mean, you're a powerful man. Can you make something about the weather staying the same? Um, can can I, slowly I'll, pull that off? I'm not that powerful. And then I'm even more not that powerful to change <laughs> New York City weather. If I could change one thing, I would just get rid of the clouds in winter. I'll take the temperature and right. the clouds. All right. We need that sun. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tommy, I have been following Alloy for many years. And um, I feel that I'm close to the company, uh, especially through Laura and, and many other people. I admire what you guys do. And so think we're going to get a, a very good education about the story of Alloy, about what you've learned along the way, and also that some some uh, some maybe predictions or, or uh, some some things to come for the future. But let's get started at the very beginning. What led you to to Alloy? Yeah, so I mean, I have to start with the obligatory like elevator pitch for Alloy before I explain what we do, Please. because uh, you know. I, I am I am told by by my team all the time you can never be selling too much. So 
Alloy solves risk problems for financial ser- services companies, in particular banks and fintechs. We solve three types of problems, fraud problems, compliance problems, and credit problems, and specifically the decision-making around those topics, stopping fraud, staying compliant, making credit decisions when you originate accounts, and after you originate accounts, everything from loans to credit cards to checking accounts to brokerage accounts, et cetera. But the way we got passionate about that topic was actually Laura, my, you, know, you referenced uh, earlier, my co-founder, are there two co-founders, um, Charles, and we have a secret fourth co-founder, Scott, who uh, prefers not to have the founder title, but shall not be mentioned. <laughs> yes, should not be mentioned, but he's, he's still here with us and is a big part of the founding story. Um, we were all working in payments, specifically ACH payments, building money movement flows primarily for financial services companies. And it's as simple as we realized that even though we were building payments infrastructure, we felt like we were spending all of our time solving the problem of verifying users, making sure we weren't doing business with synthetic identities, just demonstrating compliance to our ODFI and banking partners, underwriting credit. And in this particular instance, it was um, basically floating funds to people to be available immediately. And we, we were like, we spend no time building payment flows. We spend no time building like returns technology. We spend no time dealing with anything that feels like it's payments. We spend all of our time building r- about risk, things mm-hmm. about risk, specifically fraud compliance and credit risk. And so we all got super passionate about you know starting a company in that space. And then everything from like that insight to actually becoming a company that was doing that and like providing that service to companies and you know had money to pay its bills is was a super winding road but it's that insight has really stuck with us from the you know sometime in 2014 all the way through now where did that insight come from and, and I'll tell you this is a topic that has come up a few times in the podcast and specifically you familiar with Jimmy Sonny? He is the author of the most recent PayPal book. Oh, uh, cool. And extensive interviews with Max Levchin, Elon Musk, all those guys. And Levchin was like, you know, building a payments company is not that hard. It's, it's software. The hard part is controlling for risk and fraud, right? So this is an insight that and then they had to fix for it, right? In the yeah. late 90s, early 2000s. Where did your insight for specifically for this come from? Yeah, so specifically what we were doing was building ACH payments that could be made available instantly. So you could, for example, sign up for like a cryptocurrency wallet. It was back in 2014. A cryptocurrency wallet, you could link a bank account, a US bank account, and you could say deposit $3,000 and it could be made available immediately. And that required you to effectively, that required us effectively to be able to do a whole bunch of things around account linking, which would look like modern account linking platforms like Plaid or MX or whoever, right? Like we had to do that. That was part of the business. Uh, We had to be able to move money, which meant we had to be like, you know, working with banks and ODFIs and, and, you know, doing money transmitter stuff. And then we had to, and this was a surprise to me when I, when I got involved with the company we had to make sure the users weren't going to charge back their payments. We had to make sure they weren't money launderers. And we had to do a bunch of stuff around whether we wanted to issue a, a real-time credit or not. That I was familiar with that we were going to have to do. But the fact that, oh, the second you put a financial services product on the internet, people will try to use it to commit fraud using stolen identities, fake identities, 
you know, synthetic identities, you know, hybrids therein. Money launderers will try to use it to, you know, either get around sanctions or to layer money or to clean money and demonstrating compliance that you're not facilitating that, even if you're not demonstrating mm-hmm. that compliance is existential to being in business or out of business. That was all we talked about every day, all day, every single day. Our, what are the fraud? What are the fraud losses today? What are the credit losses today? What's going on with our ODFIs and our banking partners? And how do they feel about money laundering compliance? Who's reviewed the cases? Did we file the SAR? Did we file the CTR? Like that was all the time we spent. And after you do that for six months, you go, God damn, like why, why is this so much work? And not just so much work because there's a lot of time and attention that needs to be put onto it, which is fine. I think like, especially as I've been in financial services for a long time, the fact that we were spending a lot of our time and attention on it, fine, probably good because financial services is a risk management business after all. But the fact that the technologies to facilitate those things felt like they almost basically didn't exist was shocking. Going back, I know now that the reason was no matter how big I thought financial technology was, or you know, let's say digital financial, purely digital financial services built on the internet, no matter how big that felt to me in 2014, it was not that no. big. Yeah. 5% of accounts, I believe at the time, were originated online. Very few banks had true um, real-time account opening. The idea that you could apply for a credit card online definitely existed, but the processing therein was not digital. People were still applying for credit cards mostly at like the, you know, the um, college job fair where they would kind of come around or on airplanes or, you know, maybe four or five very skilled players doing it online. But even they were super risk averse for all those online applications like Amex, et cetera. So, you know, at the time, I thought this is crazy. All financial services is digital. Financial services is a risk business. Why is the technology that powers fraud risk, compliance risk and credit risk so bad? The answer is no, Tommy, you're just like 23 and you don't realize that financial services is all not digital. It's digitizing, but it's not digital. Um, yada, yada, yada. I mean, that was the root cause. And I was just reading QED's latest report. I think it was called the state of FinTech or something like that. FinTech is still only 2% mm. of the market cap of the industry. So it's only going to continue. So we're, we're not talking about it many things, but since we're talking about fraud, that is also a, a segment of the industry that evolves. And, you know, the, the frosters are very well organized uh, and, and they run things like a business. What are some of the most prevalent types of fraud that you're seeing today? How is that side of the industry evolved? One of the things, so so one of the things that's been so interesting, and, and so again, like, because Alloy is fundamentally decision-making software, for automating, making a decision about somebody, whether they're fraudulent or not, making a decision about whether somebody's a money launderer or making a decision about whether somebody's a credit risk or not. We are we have a very wide application in a very narrow area. So when folks go, I'm going to answer the actual question, but just as a background for why I know this answer, uh, when people actually go and facilitate the, the end-to-end decision-making process, inclusive of even if people go look at an application to do some sort of manual review, which we hope they don't have to do, but even if they do, Alloy facilitates that entire process from ingesting the external data, building the decision-making flows, building the steps the user goes through, providing case management around that, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things that we are really dialed in on is exactly what are businesses, banks, fintechs, companies that you may describe some other way, but provide financial services, money transmitters, et cetera. What are they actually doing end to end? Mm -hmm. 
today to stop fraud and say yes to good users and stop fraud? And is it working? We have like a really tight understanding of that um, because we see the entirety of the process, not just a part of the process. So what's been really interesting to me is when we, let's say, you know, we skipped some of the like between the idea and the getting the company going. Suffice it to say that was hard. But like by the time we we're in like, let's call it 2019 and we were doing this at scale for some of the larger, you know, financial service companies, banks, et cetera, even all the way back then, which wasn't that long ago, the main threat that people were mitigating was folks, uh, especially when it comes to originating new accounts, was folks basically stealing identities from, you know, uh, going on the dark web and buying identities that were breached during the Equifax breach or the Verizon breach or whatever, just taking the name, address, email, social security number, et cetera, of a, of a known person, going on a website, filling in those details and getting bank accounts and then committing fraud in those people's names, which might be you know, racking up a bunch of charges on a credit card and not paying it back. That's a very easy way to commit fraud. It might be um, spending a bunch of money, you know, depositing money from an account you don't, that doesn't belong to you, spending it. And then, you know, that money will eventually get charged back. And then the bank's on the hook, a bunch of different things, but like really simple stuff of just stealing people's identities, a really simple way. And then using them to commit fraud. And the, the, the funny thing was the way to prevent that fraud was basically to just get not just smarter than those fraudsters are, but just a little bit smarter mm. than your peers. Mm. And I call this like the slowest like deer problem or slowest gazelle problem. It's like imagine a predator is chasing, chasing after something and you don't have to be the second. You don't have to be the uh, fastest gazelle. You just need to be the second slowest because they just need to catch one. And the, the techniques that people largely implemented to stop that kind of fraud was using machine learning models provided by third parties or internal parties to basically figure out the characteristics that look like a stolen identity instead of a, you know, not stolen identity. An example might be, are they using an email address that was auto-generated in the last 90 days because they're trying to make an email address that looks like the stolen identity they're using, but they actually control simple stuff like that. Those was like pretty groundbreaking. And most of the companies we saw that implemented even basic strategies around using better data and, you know, machine learning generated scores, regardless of the quality, basically got to a fairly stable point pretty quickly in the you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019 era. Um, and the main debate was like, how many data sources should you use? Which ones should you use? In what order? How do you manage exceptions? A lot of things that we made really easy for people speeding up the adoption of these strategies, but, you know, they were not ground i didn't feel like they were groundbreaking things what's changed is that fraud has gotten bolder and fraud has gotten weirder over the intervening four years like it has gotten way bolder and way weirder i would say the weirdest i think the best example of weird that i'll give you is social media plays a huge role in scams and uh scams and various other kinds of fraud now where you'll you know we'll find our clients they'll either tell us or we'll we will find that there's little pockets of like WhatsApp or Weibo or Twitter or Facebook where people are saying, hey, you know, Neobank X is doing a giveaway of money. Here's how you get it. And they just outline committing fraud. But like it's packaged as, you know, a giveaway. And then there's sort of plausible deny. I think the people who follow that, they know, but there's right. like plausible deniability. And, you know, there's various ways it benefits the people who are writing these playbooks. That's weird. 
And, and you'll see these bursts of fraud that you're like, where did this come from? And you're like, oh, it's the social media thing. Um, that's crazy. So that that's a weird, there's a million versions of this. I like can go and do that's one way it's gotten weirder. It's gotten bolder. And this is a scarier thing, but it's gotten bolder in the sense that there are things that we used to, as I've been speaking to fraud leaders over the last year about this, like there are things that we used to think wouldn't happen. So for example, if uh, somebody's committing fraud in a digital channel, you assume that they're not going to then go exit the fraud in a physical channel, meaning like walking into an Apple store with the stolen card they got and buying stuff and walking it. Cause now they're on camera. Right. Now they're in person. Now they, now the whole thing's revealed itself. And for some reason I can speculate, but I, for, for various reasons, some of which I know, some of which I don't, I guess it'd be a better way to say it is, uh, uh there's way more like walking into Apple stores and walking out with computers some of that goes back to actually what I just talked about with the social media, which is some of the people who are involved are being manipulated. And so they don't, they can be, they can be manipulated into doing anything. Yeah. Hey, go sign up for this neobank and now go walk into this Apple store and tell them you're buying computers for this company called Alloy because they couldn't get a computer shipped for their new employees in time. And these people think that this is actually all a real legitimate thing that's happening. And then they ship them off and they're shipping them off to the fraudster who supplied them with stolen funds. And now they're the ones holding the bag. That's part of it. People being manipulated. But I believe another part of it is simply uh, some fraudsters. They're just being bolder. Yeah. Um, and it's become a more professionalized. It's become a more professionalized. The dollars are bigger. The pressure on them is higher. Their organizations are bigger. And so it's gotten weirder and it's gotten bolder. How about combating it? Have you seen any moonshot ideas that they that have been proposed or that you would like to see to keep combating fraud well so i have a somewhat i think i have a somewhat controversial take on this to some extent which is that the fraud that we see take place in the united states because this is going to be a little controversial i'll keep it broad because the fraud that we see in the united states is very different than the fraud that we see in the uk just in the uk for example I can say with confidence that some of the reason that we have so much fraud in particular financial fraud in the United States is government driven. The the government and other policymakers driven, the rules, regulations, system, laws, law enforcement in the United States facilitate openings that are not facilitated in other countries. I'll give just the, a very very simple example that I actually don't even think is that important. But like it's less controversial, so I'll use it. We didn't get chip and pin and tap, you know, tap and pin and all the all the various things that secure cards in the U.S. Yeah. until like very recently. Yeah. They had those in Europe for oh, a long time. Everywhere. Those are fraud prevention tools. Okay, without getting into some of the more controversial ones, there's lots of things like that. All right, there's lots of rules, regulations, expectations, cultural norms other regulatory or non-regulatory Visa, MasterCard, et cetera, rules that are just different in other parts of the world than they are in the United States. Um, so here's a moonshot idea. Like we kind of know how to stop a lot of fraud. Uh, it's by doing the things that happen in low fraud countries, uh, in financial services co uh, company, countries that have less fraud, um, you know, that, that would be one. Of course, I think there's aspects of digital identity verification, the data that um, uh, the governments make available about who's even a real person in the first place and what, how would you verify them? Government could play some role in that. Other uh, ecosystem players like the, the networks, et cetera, could play a role in that. Yada, yada, yada. But I, I think like 
I tend to think of these things. I, I tend to think folks think of these things as more like rocket science than they actually are. I think they're, they're all generally fairly tractable problems. Now I'll say a positive though here, which is that part of the reason that there's a lot of fraud in the United States is because there's a really, really strong consumer protection and consumer protection and the facilitation of fraud. They do have a interplay together, which is healthy to some extent. For example, chargebacks are a huge way that people commit fraud in the United States, either as in somebody else's name or even in their own name. Oh, I didn't make that purchase. Mm -hmm. That might be because you really didn't because somebody stole your stuff, which is fraud by the other person, but not by you. Or it it might be that you actually are committing fraud. It's nice that we have really kind of no questions asked consumer protection around some of that stuff. And you're seeing in the areas that actually have, you know, like more push payment type regulations like Zelle, et cetera, in the United States that well, they have fraud, but it's not the type of fraud or the scale of fraud that can happen with like third-party identity theft type things. But there are a lot of people getting tricked into sending money on sell, you know, to fraudsters, and they have no consumer protections on that. That sucks too. So I completely acknowledge there's like a huge push and pull here, but I do like to kind of come back to this like, well, do we need moonshot ideas or do we just kind of need to look around the world and say like, what is a system that facilitates less fraud and implement it? Um, you know, I'm sure it's a little bit of both. And then there's also, it's surprising to me how wide the software stack is for anti-fraud tools. I was talking to the head of anti-fraud and I won't say the name of the company, but it's pick your your favorite B2B neobank. Okay. Right? And... They were telling me just like the list of companies and providers that they use to combat and you know analyze the data from different angles and, and it was it was a long list it's extensive and yeah. and so they th- whoever that is would be they're at the deepest forefront of fraud risk and I'll tell the reason is you have a business business could be real business could be fake that's a huge important thing business could be fraudulent real but fraudulent lot going on there. The business has owners, that's relevant, but it also has operators who's actually operating, that matters. So you could have legitimate business with legitimate owners, with legitimate operators, and then one bad operator, now you've got fraud. Yeah. Lots of problems there, there to solve. Then you've got the fact that what are the expectations for businesses around business banking? Sending huge amounts of money on time. There's, there's times where payroll is the main ex- example, but there's times where if the money doesn't go out, at the expectation of a business, like the officers can be subject to like going to jail. Mm. If you don't make a payroll, you uh, promise to make and you don't then file bankruptcy effectively. It's like a really risky thing mm. for the owners and operators of businesses. And then think about accounts payable and money you owe for various, like it's a big deal to be able to send out a $50,000 wire with no questions asked because you just have to be able to do that. So you know, I, I love the business banking use cases because they tend to just be, there's like zero tolerance for fraud and highly complex operations and extremely high expectations yeah. of the people who operate uh, the companies that use those products. Um, and I think talking to those folks really will show you how wide the stack is. You have the data sources I mentioned that are more like take the data we have, provide analytics back, scores, whatever. You have biometrics. How do people behave? How do they look? What can they touch? What can they answer? 
You have step up authentication. How can I get the person to do a new a thing that I didn't originally ask them? You have like you just have this broad set of things and orchestrating them all together in the right order over time as things change, as new providers become available, as new strat- as strategies need to change, as fraud evolves, as expectations evolve, evolve as regulatory environment evolves is a constant source of pain for these founders and these operators. That's what I experienced. And I was like, holy shit, I really feel like the root problem here is needing a system that can evolve. We call it future-proofing. And that is available, makes available all the best of the entire ecosystem and isn't hard-coded into one set of opinions or one set of vendor choices. And, and that's what we do at Alloy. You knew I had to bring that back to Alloy. Absolutely. Uh, you know, <laughs> can't help. That has to be the last word of every yes. answer. And <laughs> that's why Alloy should be your partner of choice. <laughs> so, Tavi, this is all super interesting. We haven't talked too much about the early days of Alloy. And I've heard you speak before, and you're very candid and open about the, the particularly the years that were tough. And I think you describe it as uh, wandering around the desert, mm-hmm. right? Uh, take us to those days. Yeah. So when we so when we started the company in 2015, we were, you know, young group of te- technical founders and, and my co-founder, Laura, who, who you know, had a really good reputation in the fintech market. And so I'm exempting her from this next statement. But the other three, uh, and, and we had a, a fifth engineer, Peter, who, who was a big part of our founding story too. The other four of us, like, I mean, who are these guys? Like nobody knew us. We really had no material credentials. We had worked on some really interesting payments things. I think like we could hang our hat on our knowledge and our mastery of the topic area if you wanted to get into it with us. But we didn't, you know, we didn't have resumes to speak of, et cetera. Okay, so we're early 20s people with no resumes to speak of and no background and no money. And oh, by the way, like here's our pitch. Trust us with the thing that is completely existential and in fact regulatorily required. So therefore it's like there's like law. You could go to jail if you do this poorly. Maybe second worst, you'll go out of business. We want you to trust us not with a part of that stack, but the entire stack. Because we are a stack provider. We are the operating system that runs decision-making across fraud, compliance, and credit. We're not providing a new credit score. We're not providing a new fraud score. We provide the literal infrastructure that powers this stuff and makes it great. Tough pitch, man. Like, hey, you don't know me. I've got no background. I've got no money. And I want you to outsource the technology portion of the most important thing you do. Did you did you grow your beard to look older? <laughs> I did. I did the opposite. I dressed like shit and looked exactly as young as I was. And like, you know, I relied heavily on Laura. And and the reality is, and if I look back, I'm like, how did we get out of that period? It was really two things, but they took a very long time. The first was we did spend a lot of time getting to know the people in the ecosystem that would be material to us. Our early customers, we built deep trust with a lot of our early customers and worked hand in hand with them. So regardless of, you know, how how I might have given off a first impression as, you know, whatever I was, 20, a 26-year-old shithead, by the time we were really working together, like I think the depth of, you know, the rigor with which we thought about the problems that we solved, the standards that we held ourselves to, the you know, the amount of work that we did, our knowledge of the ecosystem, I think, came out. So that was one. I hope that was one at least. But that took a really, really long time. The other thing is we were everyone but Laura. And so therefore, Laura had to do a lot of things because we were the rest of us were all focused on what I'm about to say. So Laura had to kind of wear every other hat. But almost everyone who started the company was a technical and product person, Mm. not just technical, but like a product minded technical person. 
And we built really high quality product from day one and shipped really high quality product at a very fast pace from day one. And I think like no matter how skeptical folks might have been in early conversations, the pace of the pace we were able to operate and help people out, I think eventually garnered us a really, really good reputation. But it took us from like 2015 when this woman named Jenny Fielding at Techstars, absolute legend, took a shot on us, brought us into Techstars, moved us from Richmond, Virginia up to New York, which I thought was going to be a three-month thing. And now I'm on year nine, or I think I'm on year 10. Everything from that moment to some of the early folks who bet on us all the way through, really, I would say 2019, so like fully four years, was just scratching and clawing, like nothing easy. We had no more than 10 people, maybe 12 people throughout that entire period. Thought we were going to go out of business a bunch of times. I'm very open that like Laura had to talk me out of us going out of business one time because I got so demoralized that we couldn't get that. We I just felt like we were never going to get the banks and, and fintechs that really mattered over the line. They were never going to trust us with their most sensitive. So, so you thought of throwing the towel. Oh, totally. And 2017, like it was funny. And, and I've really learned, I have this now thing that I say a lot, which is the moment that things are actually pretty far into getting better tends to be the moment people want to give up the most. And the reason for that is if you just think about like a curve of like, I'm so excited, uh, everything's bad. Okay, now things are getting better. The point where things are getting better is very close to the low point on that curve, like from a just pure like distance, you're only just a little bit above the low point. So you're still in a terrible place. And it's actually been a longer time since you were excited than the low point. The low point, you can still remember when you were excited. When things start to get better, it's been even longer. And that was what was happening to us in 2017. And it's a lesson I, I talk to myself about a lot. I talk to other people about a lot. Think about whether that could be happening to you. Um, and in this case, it was we had come two years in. We had a couple of customers. We had a few customers. And we were in the middle of selling the customers that were going to really matter and take us to the next level. And I just felt like they were never going to happen. I just felt like it had been so long. I had been pitching the same people for so long. They were so bought in on what we were doing. They couldn't purchase. Like, why is that? You know, what's going on between everyone feeling like we're solving this really material problem, us even having enough customers you could talk to where you can believe it's real. And then like nobody can actually buy the thing. And I was just like, I feel like there's something fundamental I don't understand about this market. What then happened is little by little, and I remember like a couple of weeks after we had that conversation where I was like, I just don't know if it's ever going to happen. One of those deals just sent us the signed paperwork and said, let's get going. I'm like, okay, well, there's one and then another and then another. And and I'm not saying it was like a deal a week, but it it started to kind of happen the way it would then happen for the rest of time up until now, which is like, yeah, people like get interested. It takes some period of time and you do the right things, you do the right POC and then they buy the product. But I got super demoralized just in that like, wow, it seems like people even want to buy the product and they don't even seem like they're able to. It turns out, fast forward, our, our um, now our head of global Edwina, but she was our COO for many years before she just moved back to the UK and opened up our global presence in our, in our UK team, which is super exciting. But when Edwina joined later that year, I mean, I think she thought it was like, I don't know if she thought it was funny, but I think she thought it was obvious that the reason all the things that I was describing of like, well, why can't they buy the product? They're like, Tommy, because we don't have a legal and compliance department to like work through red lines on their contracts. And we make it so hard to procure the thing because we make them do 18 other external things before they can sign our contract. And, you know, it turned out that the answer to why it was so hard to sell was because it's an infrastructure product doing the most sensitive thing ever. And by the way, we didn't really know how to do the commercial side of it. 
And then once we got good at that stuff, like, you know, it got easier, but, but yeah, it was super demoralizing. And I, I have taken that as a lesson of how to identify the wrong type of demoralizing from the right type of demoralizing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's, that's amazing. And I guess it also goes to show you that you, your team is important. Who surrounds you is important. What has been your philosophy to grow the team and make sure you're building the right people on board? Well, so I, um, what has been my philosophy, I'm sure I've had a lot of bad philosophies around this. I think two things, I'll see if I can find the words to describe some things I think I've done wrong, but I'm start by doing some things that I think we've done right. I have been bailed out personally of a lot of things that I would have done that would have been bad by the fact that my co-founders and, and everybody who started the company and the first few people we hired are all high integrity, tier one, quadruple A smart and kind people. And in fact, Laura and Scott, two of the four people who are on the founding team and that are, that are still here are like really like dialed in kind, like people with um, like a really kind of front of mind kindness mentality versus my co-founder Charles and I, who I, I think Charles is an extremely kind person. And then I'll, I'll just withhold my opinion about myself, but him and I, are very willing to just like argue each other to death in front of anyone in front of each other and then like go out and have a beer afterwards. Um, and so even just among the four of us having that sort of balance of those mentalities and being, you know, me being able to lean maybe more into the more like balanced version, more like kind forward version of leadership that I think Laura and I, I always credit Scott as being a part of that. Like all the people I think are, like I said, like super smart, super kind, blah, 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 blah. But also the mix of people and then our relationship has helped guide us to having a really good dynamic and a really good outcome. And we have, I think we have demonstrated that to other people consistently and without exception, because that's something that we have at our core. We also trust each other a ton, having all worked together, but also Charles Scott and I went to high school together. Right. They're like best friends in high school. I went to college with Charles. We worked on a startup there. Like, so we also have really kind of, you know, deep, uh, you know, deeper kind of relationship bonds that backfires for a lot of people, but it's been amazing for us. So that's something that we've done. Right. And then I would add uh, a lot of the early people who joined our team have those same qualities. Um, our first, first engineering hire, Jeff, our COO, Edwina. So we, we, we had that at the core. The other thing that I would say is that we've done well. And so why does that matter? Because for whatever reason, the sort of early nucleus and the way people operate, it just replicates itself in so many ways, the good and the bad. It just, you get the, you get the bad that you demonstrate to other people as a group. You get the good that you demonstrate from other people as a group. That's who wants to join. That's who you recruit that it just is the way that it is. So that's, that's, that's been on the balance. Very, very good. Um, the other thing um, around team building that we've done uh, I think particularly well is um, we hired a head of people very, very early. And I tell founders this, like as soon as you're going to be hiring more than two people at a time and really well, anyone go try to find a partner who's going to run the people function for at least some period of time. And our head of people has scaled with us from, from employee 12 to, to now and is continuing to fly high. Go find somebody to lead that function that you really trust as an equal partner in the business. Because if you are, a people forward person who really likes, likes people, cares about people, et cetera. It just eats up all your energy. If you don't have somebody you really trust partnering to build, to not only deal with good things, problems, whatever it is, but also to build the processes that you can feel proud of. And I think we've done that really well. 
what is, and I was reflecting on this just, just yesterday. I was reading back on some like scorecards I wrote in leadership hiring a very long time ago. What are some things that we did poorly? You know, I don't think, and, or what have we gotten better over time? And actually Kim, uh, our head of people has helped us get better over time. Having a real, cause you asked me this, having a real philosophy that goes beyond those things I just said mm-hmm. about what's going to make a good hire, a good leader, a good individual, a good this, a good that. We have those philosophies now, and I think we have earned them because we have been through so many, so much growth, and we've just had so many opportunities to learn. But you know, we came in as as somewhat inexperienced people having to learn a little bit on the fly, and I think we're saved and have like a great culture and a great team, and and are are known for that to some extent because of those two things we got right. We got, I guess, said another way, maybe we got almost everything else wrong, and we're saved by the <laughs> fact that we had an ultra strong head of people and a really strong demonstrable core. Um, and we figured out everything else as we go. Tell me, you were just talking about Alloy's struggles and kind of wandering around the desert. There are a number of founders today, when is this? May, 2023, mm-hmm. that are probably going through similar struggles, yeah. right? You know, what's your take on, on what's happened in the market, where we are, where with with a lot of companies having serious existential risk, either because they can't raise or their cap table is busted or yeah. a number of many different things. Okay, so here's what makes this hard. And and then you and I have talked about this a little bit. So this but this is what makes this hard. I talk to people all the time and I hear their situation. So I'm just like, boy, like that's it's a really tough situation. <laughs> that's gonna be that's gonna be hard. And then I think about the businesses that I know that didn't just work right away, like Alloy. I mean, Alloy really didn't just work right away. I, I think we, I think we made, yeah, I'm going to spare you the numbers, but like the numbers of the acceleration from like 2018 to 2019 to 2020, and this was pre pandemic. Like it's, it's almost like the business didn't exist from 2015 to 2019. We produced so little. Right. So like it was a really long time. And yet like, I think Alloy is now extremely, almost objectively valuable in a lot of really fundamental ways. We have uh, over 400 customers. We have huge number of important banks, huge number of important fintechs. Uh, we have better product than we've ever had. We have the best product in the market for the things that we do in many cases by a ton. And so then I'm hearing, you know, you'll be talking to somebody and they're like, you know, and you really realize they're kind of in a really shitty situation. I'm like, I don't really want to tell them to give up because it feels like the right advice to give. And then I think back to like, oh boy. Like your entire life and your entire, like everything that's going to be the most, you know, successful thing you've ever done comes from the fact that you didn't give up. And I've just noodled this a whole bunch. And instead of giving, I think advice is usually a bad thing to give because it's advice is generic and you really need to get down to the specifics and talk it through. So I'll just say what I'm looking for these days. All right. The first thing I'm looking for is. I go back to why did Laura and Charles talk me out of what was the thing that they said to me and said to us and what were we saying to ourselves that kept us going? And it was that we loved working together. That was one thing. And and we really did want to build something together. That's not a great reason, but it is a prerequisite. So it wasn't a slog going to work every day with Laura and Charles and Peter and Jeff and, and Edwina. It was a joy. So that was, so you could tell yourself that story, but the more important fact for why we were going to succeed was we were still dead convinced with no caveats 
that the problem we were solving the way we were solving, if we could get past this thing that I was very frustrated with, which was just like, we couldn't get the, the business side of the business moving, um, was going to be huge and that it was going to be a big category. And if we didn't do it, somebody else would do it. And nobody else seemed to be doing it. And we had done a pretty good job and we knew we had built the product to be good. So this chasm of just getting enough customer momentum to get more customer momentum really did feel like the only thing that felt like the only thing. And it turned out to be dead true that that was the only thing. So if I talk to founders and I feel like they feel like the path to get to some thing is so uncertain and could be the funding environment, could be bought, whatever it is. And that's, what's demoralizing them. I'm like, head down, man, figure it out. Like just figure it out. Because if you get pat, like time matters so much. And if you can get the time and you can keep grinding that out day over day, and then you're the one who's been around it for five years, not a year and a half. And you have the trust of the customer or you just build and build and build. And now your product blows people's minds or whatever. I'm using like things I've been through, but like something about time might really matter to you. If instead, on the other hand, you're, I can tell they're doing it because they feel like they owe it to somebody. Mm -hmm. Then it's like, let me free your mind. You can give the money back. You can give the money back. Like people need to, there's two things people really need to hear. You can give the money back and you can raise a down round. You can raise a down round if you're in that first camp where it's like, you just need to get over that hump, whatever it is, you can raise a down round. Down rounds are great. We've raised a down round. We raised a down round. We raised a down round or like something approximating a down round at under a $10 million valuation with like almost a million in ARR. Like FinTech market used to be different, dude. Yes. I'm just telling you. And this was not that long ago. So, and you know, our most recent round was a, a billion and a half valuation just for, so, so like, just like the context there. You can grow out of them. You can grow out of it, right? It's like completely possible. You can raise a down round and the down round. And what cracks me up is a lot of the down rounds that these founders talk about like, wow, I raised at a hundred billion. I raised a hundred million. How could I raise at 60 million? I'm like, you can just raise at 60 million. Guess what? You get 20 million on a $60 million valuation. You didn't sell the whole company. Now you have $20 million, like $20 million. I can't believe it sometimes. And I think, I think that, I think that's the most common dilemma people are in right now is figuring out which of those they're in. But I think a tell is when the way people describe the entire problem is in relationship to their valuation, their investors, investor expectations, external expectations. And the reason that I lean more into suggesting that people should really think about giving the money back rate or, or giving the money back or shutting down, maybe they may not have money to give back, but if they have money is because I think over the last, I hope this doesn't sound like get off my lawny, but I think it's true. I think over the last like three years in particular, people have been encouraged directly to start companies in a way that they never were before. It used to be everyone was trying to talk you out of starting a company. There was a very select number of people in a very select number of physical communities and then like non-physical communities, like alumni of certain schools, alumni of certain um, of certain companies that were outwardly encouraged to, to start companies. Now it's like, oh, you're a PM at any company that's ever raised money. You should start a company for sure. Like that was kind of how the like pipeline was generating. And I really think a lot of companies, I, I, I talk to founders all the time that I'm like, why are you starting the company? They're like, well, I knew I was going to start a company. So then I did some exercise and then I started the company. I'm like, that's a really 
that's, well, that's just not a great way to start a company. That's just not like you started with the end in mind. And if you've now backed your way into something you're passionate about and you think it's going to work, awesome outcome. But if you have it, then like it was a, it was a fool's errand in the first place. And everyone will be chill if you give the money back. Everyone will be fine if you shut the company down. I've shut a company down. I think I've shut two companies down. It's okay. So, you know, that's, that's where my head's at. That's my soapbox. And by the way, I think we're a little bit back in that moment where not everyone is starting companies. Mm-mm. Uh-uh. Right. And then the ones that do, they're kind of obsessed about it. I, I think one of the things that pissed me off for a long time was when people would complain about how easy it is to raise money. I remember in 2018, people being like, oh, it's so easy for these founders to raise money. I was like, it's impossible for me to raise money. So I don't know who you're talking about, but it's, I'm spending all of my time. I mean, Laura and I from 2016 to 2017 pitched a hundred investors and got a hundred no's. Now we had raised a great seed round from the infinitely patient and amazing primary ventures and a few other folks here in New York and Jenny Fielding had, had put us in tech stars. And, but we had, we made a million, we made a million and a half dollars last like two and a half years or something. Maybe we raised another $250,000 or something. Oh no, that's definitely true. This, this, an angel investor, I just can't remember if this, if she's like public that she did that, but like we had an angel investor write us like a hundred thousand dollar check. I think it was a scout check, but I don't even know. I've, I've, I've never even looked into this in like 2017 that actually I think we would have gone to business, go out, gone out of business if she hadn't written that check. Like that level of like needing money that we were in, we stopped paying ourselves. We had no savings. So it wasn't like stop paying yourselves and live off savings. It was like, stop paying yourselves and like, see if your landlord notices you didn't pay rent type situation. Anyway. So people used to say that all the time. And I used to be like, that's so ridiculous. And you talk to founders in almost every geo of almost every background. And they're like fundraising $250,000 is freaking impossible. What are you people talking about? It's still, that's always been true all the way through the mania of 2021, 2022, 2023. I guess not so much 2023. I will say though, it did get pretty easy for a much larger group of people to raise money. And I think that group of people it's good that that was a different than the previous group of people, group of people. And it wasn't just like HBS grads or whatever, but I think it was bad in the sense that it became, I mean, a lot of VCs pitch founders on like starting companies. I think there's a limit to how good that can be. I think there's certain funds that do a really good job of identifying people that should really start companies and partnering with them. But it became like a real like Sequoia, you know, I, I don't know if they did this. So I'm, I'm accusing them of something. I don't know the details on big funds going just kind of like pool of money. Startup comes out of Robinhood, fund it like it's just happening. I, I think that's been it may be good for the world. I'm not sure. I think it's been pretty tragic for a lot of those founders. And um, and I'll just end with saying, like, the reason you brought this up is because you know, just the way that I know, that this isn't like an esoteric, like niche podcast question. This is something people are really going through. Yeah. We have a lot of founders out there that are going through it, capital G, capital T, capital I. Yeah. And um, and, I, and I hope that they know that the options that they have on the table are open to them. And you know, there's not yes. only one way out of this. Tommy, amazing conversation. Thanks again for... Uh welcoming me to the Alloy Mothership. Yes. It's going to be a a popular episode, no doubt. I hope so. And I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a great conversation and look forward to chatting more. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Tommy, CEO of Alloy. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.